0: Ignition switches, on, RPM switches, set, TV switches, normal, doors and hatches, closed, lay down, throw light on, restart, check is complete. your left, engineers, start number two. Starting two. Wing 31010, pilot project podcast, clear takeoff, runway one left. All right, we're ready for departure here at the Pilot Project Podcast, the best source for stories and advice from the pilots of the RCAF, brought to you by Skies Magazine and RCAF Today. I'm your host, Brian Morrison. With me today is my buddy, Corey O'Neill. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, we'll go over Corey's bio. Corey graduated from flight training in 2015 and was posted to 423 Maritime Helicopter Squadron in Shearwater, Nova Scotia, flying the new CH-148 Cyclone. While awaiting training on that aircraft, he flew some familiar trips on the retiring CH-124 Seaking and took a ground operations deployment to Kuwait during Op Impact to work with the CP-140 Aurora fleet in 2016-2017. He also took the delay as an opportunity to do the Arctic Survival and Advanced Siri training in Resolute Bay and Winnipeg, respectively. After completing his OTU training in 2017 on the CH-148, he was immediately deployed as a First Officer with the HMCS Ville-de-Quebec on the first operational deployment of the Cyclone. Upon return, he completed the upgrade to Maritime Hilo or MH Aircraft Commander and deployed again with the HMCS Toronto. Following that deployment, he completed the Maintenance Test Pilot Course and the Maritime Helicopter Crew Commander upgrade, reaching his highest category in the community. During his posting, he was involved in domestic operations, several multinational operations, and was deployed on a few short sails to the Caribbean. He was posted to three Canadian Forces flight training school in 2022 and recently became a qualified flight instructor. So where did aviation start for you?
1: Aviation started completely by accident for me, for the most part. I worked for the RCMP while I was in university, at the University of Ottawa. And originally I had planned to be a police officer. So I worked doing policy work for them in Ottawa and headquarters. During my time there, I essentially um, worked with the Skyhawks, the parachute jump team. Oh, cool. And it was just kind of a public relations thing that we were doing. And after that, we all went out for drinks. There were some delays in my progress anyways, trying to crack the police force as a regular member. I had ambitions to get down to BC and do some work down there. And I was a bit frustrated. And they had mentioned the military as an option for me mm-hmm. and said, well, You should check out being an intelligence officer in the military. Okay. And after a mundane day at work, I decided to go down to Spark Street in Ottawa and apply. So while there, essentially, they were quite happy that I already had a security clearance. I was working for the government. I did some reserve time when I was quite young in Thunder Bay. So they created a file for me and when we're pretty enthusiastic, I thought I had kind of was a shoe in for it and went back to work. And after a couple of months, I didn't hear anything from them. So I inquired again and they said, well, we're, we're simply not hiring oh. for that particular trade. And I said, well, what can you give me? You know, I want to be challenged both physically. I want to be in the mix, but I want something that's going to make me think. And they said, well, you should be a pilot. And I immediately dismissed that as an option for myself. I had no previous background. I didn't have an engineering background. I was a international relations and global politics graduate. That sounds
0: like a perfect pilot. Yeah, exactly.
1: Right. Somebody that is a complete uh, natural. And the way that it was explained to me was more or less, you're kind of in the queue anyways, what's the harm? Brush up on your math and we're going to send you to Trenton. So off I went and it was explained to me that typically guys that Or girls that come into this trade have a background, obviously, in the field, or they've done air cadets or gliders or have a private pilot's license, which tempered my expectations. And I, uh, you know, I went down to Trenton and tried my best to, uh, I guess, compete and crack the lineup and and, and it worked
0: out for me. Wow. Yeah. So you had no background in aviation. None. No initial intent to be a pilot. None. (laughs) But your trade was closed. And they recommended it to you. And that was that.
1: Yeah. I think there was a timing thing where the trade had just opened and I had a good recruiter who said that this, this is an option based off of my prerequisites. And again, kind of tempered my expectations as to, you know, who is typically successful in the trade. And yeah, he was sent down to aircrew selection. I think there was 14 of us that went down and six came out the other end, either, you know, that weren't successful in the initial portion or or the medical portion that follows. And I was successful. So off I went.
0: So when did you start thinking like, okay, I'm going to be a pilot?
1: It wasn't until phase one, I'd say.
0: Where it started to feel real. Where it
1: started to feel like, you know, that it was a possibility. Obviously you get excited at the prospect. Basic training wasn't something I was massively worried about, but I went through And I know actually Captain Foreman talked about this a little bit as well, but I went through during the heyday of, I think there was like a 60 to 70% failure rate in phase one. So I just worked as hard as I could to try to be successful. And
0: how did that go? How did your flight training go?
1: You know, at hindsight is 2020, uh, looking back on it, I loved it. Yeah. I'm very much more so now kind of of the opinion that growth happens in failure and I had a little bit of that, obviously, with my struggles in the RCMP or trying to crack the police force. But I mean, I forged some of the best friendships through training. The challenges of training were something that I came to enjoy once you surpass the stress yeah. that of course you're aware of and everybody else that's kind of gone through that rigorous training is aware of.
0: Did you have any big setbacks during your flight training?
1: Nothing that was substantial you know, a few failed trips here and there, you know, one or two EDs on the way through extra duels to brush up on a few things. But I came through pretty unscathed. Yeah. Luckily.
0: Now, when you had those, how did you do those extra duels from a failure? Did you find that difficult? Did you have a tool you used to get through that or?
1: It's a mental game for sure. You know, you you go into any one of those training flights, especially pre-wings, knowing that you know, your career is kind of on the line or is it, it, at the very least, it's a perspective that you have
0: mm-hmm, for sure,
1: uh, of the student. So, you know, that it is very much a do or die type situation. So really just ensuring that, you know, your stuff and getting into the books and trying to prepare yourself as much as you can before you jump in the aircraft is really all you can do. Try to calm your nerves.
0: Yeah. So preparation was yeah. your big thing.
1: I'd say so. Yeah.
0: So you did get through your flight training? I did. And you got to selection and you get selected for the cyclone. Yes. Now at the time were they saying cyclone or seeking?
1: It, it depended who you asked. It was right on that cusp, really.
0: Okay. So you weren't sure if you're going to be like the last cadre of seeking?
1: Exactly, exactly. So they did on my graduation announce, you know when they kind of make that announcement yep. during the the ceremony that I am off to fly the brand new Cyclone. Okay. But I, I, I feel like in speaking with people from the squadron, they were saying that years prior. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet they were still in the Sea King. So <laughs> I think it was just kind of a caged response for them, maybe. Yeah,
0: yeah. And was that what you had wanted to get? So
1: I jumped around a little bit. I was heavily influenced by my primary and secondary instructors here in Southport, and they were both MH guys.
0: MH is short for Maritime Helicopter.
1: And they really spoke to some of the benefits of MH and spoke to the lifestyle a little bit. I originally, I think when I was in basic training, wanted to go tack hell, And then that parried over to search and rescue and doing domestic ops. And then by the time I graduated, I was swayed to MH. So I did end up getting what I wanted, but I was uh, pretty indecisive I'd yeah. say, at
0: times. That's fair. I think a lot of us were though, back then, because you have so little idea. All you have is a few secondhand accounts. And if you're lucky, you've sat down with an instructor or two who's flown different airframes, but you really don't know.
1: Yeah. I feel like probably a lot of, a lot of listeners or a lot of people that think about pilots are like, I want to go jets. Yeah, Like, you know, jets is kind of the thing because I've watched Maverick. Yep. Yeah. Um, but once you get into actually how operations work and what you want to do and where you want to live and you want to get paid. There's just so many different variables that you have to consider in terms of work-life balance, family, all the stuff that that you need to kind of bring into account. So
0: yeah, totally agree. Were you intimidated at all asking for the maritime hilo fleet by the idea of being at sea?
1: No, no, I wasn't. My I I spoke about my reserve time. It was in the Navy. Now granted it was in Thunder Bay. So I really just (laughs) floated around Lake Superior. That didn't really count. But no, it really didn't phase me about going to sea. So overwater
0: operations really, really didn't come into my frame of mind. So before you started flying on the Cyclone, you deployed in a ground position in support of Op Impact to work with the CP-140 Aurora fleet. I did. How did that come about?
1: So going back to, uh, I guess, whether or not I was going to fly the Sea King or the Cyclone when I got to Squadron, they told me, you know what, you're lucky. You were going to be on the last Sea King OTU. So I thought, that's fantastic. I'm going to fly both aircraft. I'm going to get some experience. So I was awaiting this OTU. I was course loaded on the training and it was the Friday prior to the OTU start. And I got called into the DCO's office and he says, I'm so sorry, but you've been off ramped and you are no longer on the OTU. Reason being because the fleet was kind of dwindling and OTUs were taking a little bit longer. It was a course of eight and they cut it to a course of six and I was number seven. That must've been a tough. It was, <laughs> I mean, it was nice that it was a Friday. Yeah. That, that I could. That, that might've been strategic. Yeah, that could've been strategic. So in the period of time after that, uh, for coming to terms with the fact that there would be probably a significant delay in my training, I just kind of wanted to take advantage best I could and do some additional training. So you mentioned it in kind of the preamble there that, you know, I did Arctic survival. I did a series. Can you explain what A-Series is? A-Series, yes. That's the Advanced Survive, Evade, Resist, Escape. It's put on here just outside of Winnipeg, and it essentially gives you the survival techniques and skills in case you have a downed aircraft and you're kind of behind enemy lines. It just kind of gives you some survival techniques. It's a challenging course and kind of has you on the run, sleep deprived for quite some time, but it's great training. So I did all these other things that were made available to me essentially to be as productive as possible before I got into the actual helicopter training and, and Kuwait was given to me as an option. Obviously the CP 140 fleet, as well as the maritime helicopter community, we're kind of in the same realm of work. Yeah, for sure. So it was a nice way for me to transition into MH and learn a little bit about underwater warfare, above water warfare, and things that would be relevant to me when I actually did hit the fleet. Yeah. So that was a six month tour? Actually, I did uh, several back to back to back HLTA backfills. Okay, so it ended up being just over three, okay in order to accommodate
0: everybody. Okay, so yeah, and that was a positive experience.
1: It was. yeah, it was a really good experience. I got it was my first operation, you know, kind of out in the real world, which was a nice thing. I did learn a lot just about the the coordination in terms of like obviously a bigger joint mission like that. And I did learn quite a bit about CP 140 operations as well. So I did a lot of mission prep, worked with intelligence, cultivated kind of all of the information that would go
0: into their daily brief. And then I would brief the crews before they went up. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those briefings are huge. That's really cool. I didn't realize that's what you're doing over there. Yeah. What do you think was the coolest experience you had while you were over there?
1: Coolest experience I had had to have been who I ended up there with, I feel. So... We talked about training a little bit and my experience in the training system here. Phase two is a real highlight for me and and I will shout out my guys in Kestrel Flight. But uh, that was probably the most enjoyable phase. It was kind of a long eight-month stint here in Southport. And of course, all of those individuals kind of branched out to their respective fleets after. Some went multi, some went helo. And while we were there, there was about three or four of us that ended up back in Kuwait at the same time with the respective fleets and we got to kind of catch up. It was just a really neat experience to have all these guys. Some of them were flying. A couple of us were doing ground jobs while waiting and we all got to kind of reconnect in Kuwait.
0: Which is pretty cool when you run into an old friend from the Air Force and you're both doing your thing in an operational theater. Yeah. It's neat to see that friendly face in a, in a faraway place. Absolutely.
1: And I don't know if it was kind of the same when you went through but even through basic training there was a lot of pilots loaded on that course so we all kind of weathered the storm together to finally get our wings and then we all kind of branched out and did our own thing and ended up spread out across the country so it was almost like a you know to see everybody at, at completion yeah and be able to hang out it was a really really cool
0: so what exactly does the cyclone do It's a loaded question.
1: It does everything, which is kind of what was one of the main selling features when speaking to the MH guys. So primary functions above water warfare and underwater warfare, right? So it, it acts as the eyes and ears for the Navy. It deploys as a Naval asset over the horizon and is able to identify vessels that are above water and then has a capability to uh, track submarines and engage in underwater warfare secondarily it's um it's a secondary SAR platform essentially and it does utility work as well so we can hoist we can sling troop transport diver deployments so it's a little bit of everything
0: yeah you guys do it all yeah i knew obviously that you guys were a (laughs) anti-submarine warfare the ASW asset, yeah. because I've worked with plenty of maritime helicopters, but I didn't realize, I mean, it seems obvious, but I didn't realize that you guys would do all that utility work as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Utility is a big part of it. You know, we had the capability to hoist and sling obviously as well. I can't tell you how many times that operationally that was employed but it's a capability that we have and
0: one that you maintain and have to train for
1: and one that we maintain and we do it we do it overland and at sea so okay. we we'll pick up you know a, a load and do circuits around the ship and come back and try to pickle it in a certain spot so okay yeah
0: how was the cyclone a step up from the sea king what's the big differences
1: the biggest difference was the capacity for sanitization in that t just go the ball
0: So, that's like a big sonar ball that you dip in the ocean and you can ping with, right? And
1: then it opens up, and essentially we can put sound into the water and then we can track that way. So, we almost had to, in the initial stages, rethink our tactics and our dipping profiles, for example, just because putting that particular sonar in the water just sanitized. Can't remember what the metric was in terms of like how much more, but it was significantly more than what the Sea King was capable of. So, they would do whatever pattern they chose that would be in line with whatever tactics they were trying to employ and it almost didn't apply because one dip with this particular ball would just cover a massive area
0: so you guys basically had to start rethinking how do you fight with this aircraft
1: yeah it's honestly it was good and bad it was worse for pilots because (laughs) we didn't fly as much but you could Sit in the hover essentially, and it was really the sensor operator in the back that would play with the specifics of like the settings essentially of the sonar to try to pick up whatever the target may be. But we didn't have to do much in terms of movement to try to maximize. Area,
0: yeah. I mean, that's the name of the game, right? That's the only reason when you're out doing ASW, that's the only reason you're out there is to put those guys where they want to be. Exactly. You're just there to get them in the right spot so they can do their thing. Glorified bus driver. Yeah, that for point, sure. Yeah. Can you tell us a little more about the training and upgrade process for a cyclone pilot?
1: Sure. So you get to your squadron. You're sent to the operational training unit, uh, being 406, and you go through the OTU. When successful on the OTU, you'll be employed on squadron. From there you'll do a little bit of local flying and start working away on your upgrade package a big part of that upgrade package is seaborne operations so you deploy as a co-pilot and work away at that from there you get all your seaborne checks as well as your overland checks and upgrade to aircraft captain and then you it's almost a rinse repeat for a maritime helicopter crew commander, there's an upgrade package, things that you need to do. And that's, that's more sort of the, the tactical side. They have a crew commander course, which I thought was fantastic. It was a really good, almost a forum of really experienced MH guys. So it was a good combination of learning the tools, employing the tools, say in the simulator, filling that role, but also drawing from the experiences of some really knowledgeable Maritime helicopter operators. So I couldn't say enough good things about the course. And then from there, you go through your typical check rides and eventually get that crew commander um, qualification. It's not exactly that quick. There's obviously hours requirements and uh, things like that as well. But that's typically the stepping stone in every one of those roles you typically deploy in some capacity. So you'll deploy as a co-pilot. You'll deploy as an aircraft captain, sometimes an aircraft captain and an MHCC. Or sometimes just as an aircraft captain, then you might get a short
0: sale as an MHCC as well. And when you say deploy, you mean a sale?
1: A sale, yeah. So I did two long ones. So I did a, a six, seven month sale as a co pilot. I did a six month sale as an aircraft captain. And then I just did some more so local flying, but it was in a uh, like a Join X type thing with the Navy as an MHCC. So I got. A few rides as a crew commander, but I didn't really get to deploy in that role. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You were talking about the crew commander course that you guys take. That mentorship is so key when it comes to, because you're stepping into this leadership role. And the thing that's different about being a crew commander on the Aurora or the maritime helicopter is unlike other fleets, you are organized into crews and you're responsible for that crew And their admin, like it's not just when you're flying that you're responsible for them, right? Right. So you have a leadership position that a lot of pilots don't get put into,
1: right? And that dichotomy was something that was most confusing to me and a little bit challenging when when I did deploy as an aircraft captain, is just kind of knowing my arcs. Mm -hmm. Vice the crew commander that I had, which was a taco, and uh, he did a really good job as well of of still mentoring me in that role and. I got to employ kind of what I was trying to employ as a as a new aircraft captain to try to gain the required experience deploying in that role. So it's a lot of teamwork that kind of goes into that relationship.
0: Yeah. And you can get that mentorship. It's important, right? You can get that mentorship. From a TACO. A TACO is an AXO. So we just interviewed someone who explained on a recent episode that an AXO is Air Combat Systems Officer, aka a navigator. Yeah. And on the maritime fleets, both the Aurora and the maritime helicopter, you can have a AXO who is the crew commander. Yes. So you can get plenty of mentorship from those guys and girls as well. For sure. So we just started talking about this a bit, but something unique about the Cyclone is that it deploys on board a ship. Can you tell us what a normal day at sea looks like for a cyclone crew member? They
1: call that an oxymoron, a normal day at sea. Okay. Yeah. Seaborne operations are interesting for sure. So there's usually this familiarity period where you integrate with the Navy. They do things differently. They're on different schedules. And you really have to try to find this balance with them being kind of the awkward cousin in their ship dynamic but they usually eventually break and they they welcome you with open arms typically on ship you you know you're woken up by their bong bong alarms first thing in the morning you go and you have breakfast you look at what they have it's called the flex and that's their schedule essentially and where your your air missions fit in that particular day and then you start planning around that the interesting thing about Shipborne operations is no matter which crew you are on, you're always
0: involved. That being you'll have a
1: landing signals officer, an LSO, or
0: you're the flying pilot. Now the landing signals officer, that's the person who's in that little kind of mini control tower hut thing, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you're clearing them for takeoff, clearing them for landing, and you're working alongside the bridge. You're essentially on comms with the bridge, getting their required clearance to bring them in, make sure that your rad has safe, so you're not not shining a radar or anything like that.
0: Rad has is radar hazard.
1: Yeah. So you make sure that they're safe to come in into the landing profile and,
0: and not just blasting them with radar, basically. <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly right. So you're always kind of employed. And if the deck commander happens to be flying, then responsibilities can be delegated to you to, to kind of deal with the other piece being like the day to day admin that needs to happen during the because our sorties are about three hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, while well, at sea. So you could fly anywhere from one trip to four trips with both crews throughout the day, depending on what your uh, what your goals are for the day. But then otherwise it's kind of normal. Uh, again, oxymoron, normal-ish in that you try to go to the gym, but your gym moves and rocks and rolls. Yeah, um, And depending on the sea state, you try to have some dinner, but your plates might, you know. Shift. Is that hard to
0: get used to?
1: It is. I remember my first exposure was as I was, again, just trying to, capitalize on some learning opportunities as a young new member of 423 I jumped on the Athabascan before they retired it okay and went out on a familiar they call it a salty dip <laughs> and I don't think I was more than a couple miles out of the break and I was not feeling great were you getting seasick yeah you have to work yourself up to it I I've now come to realize that everybody gets seasick Yeah it is at what level you get seasick is the variable. So we build up our tolerance and, and eventually you can deal with it, but it does take some getting used to.
0: If you're pretty sick, do they just give you a break to deal with it or do you still have all your duties?
1: They give you a little bit, a little bit of a break. A lot of personnel in the Navy can wear like say a patch that I don't, no idea what it actually does. I think it messes with your inner ear a little bit and can help combat some seasickness, but us having a different medical profile and having to fly, we don't have access to it. So okay. we just have to grin and bear it. So, I mean, they're going to hate that I say this, but we might be a little bit harder than the Navy <laughs> because, because we don't get any, any gravel-esque type things. That's right. The Air Force
0: with. is known for its Yes, for his, for his,
1: its ruggedness.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So when you guys have a rough sea state, what's it like taking off and landing from a ship?
1: Taking off is easier. Yeah, because essentially you're just pulling pitch. And, Did
0: you time it with the roll?
1: Yes. So that's again one of the roles of the LSO, the Landing Signals Officer. So you are what they call trapped on deck, and that's the bear trap has you kind of latched to the deck with a probe, and the sea has a rhythm, and once it has that, they call it a quiescent period. But once it has kind of a quiet period, they will. Open the trap and clear you take off. And without delay, you want to pull pitch and start flying away from the ship.
0: Okay. Essentially. Basically, so it doesn't like come up and smack you as you're... Yeah.
1: yeah essentially, like you you have, maybe it's one second, maybe it's two seconds to start lifting. So you don't want
0: to delay at all. What's that like the first time you do that?
1: As you would imagine, uh, it is, <laughs> it, there is some stress and, and co-pilots are often very white knuckled when they're doing it. But no doubt good aircraft captains are shadowing the controls like we do kind of here when you're learning a new skill. So, so yeah, that part's a little bit easier. The biggest concern obviously is, is drift and there's kind of visual illusions that you got to deal with because the ship may be coming towards you and away from you with, you know, the waves and the, and the motion of the ship, you might feel like you're drifting towards it or drifting back. You have to just be very steady on the controls. And then kind of take off
0: i guess because the ship's your only reference visually right so if it starts to move around you might think you're moving
1: exactly so this will parry very well into the next which is landing and you can imagine that that's even more difficult so Mm -hmm. when the ship is kind of rocking and rolling you're looking at a reference that is just above the hangar you feel very very close there's it's not a very large landing spot obviously to begin with but you'll have that the reference of that hangar that is coming toward you and away from you And you have to just kind of trust your references and trust that you're not moving. Wow. And once you hit that quiescent period, you have to call that you're going to attempt a landing and you're almost working with the LSO to ensure that your attempt is safe and you can wave yourself off. If it's not going well, your co-pilot can wave you
0: off if it's not going well. And the LSO could also wave you off. If it's not going well. What's that like? If it's, let's say nighttime and rough. The worst.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's, honestly it's a double-edged thing because you land successfully with such a sense of accomplishment. Yeah. But at the same time, it's after you're done kind of breathing into the paper bag. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But like really, you know what I mean? Like it can get tense for sure. And it can get challenging. And a lot of the times, you know, I've been in situations where you just have to wait yeah. in that high hover for three, four, five minutes. The bridge is probably in the LSO's ear saying you got to land now, get down, get down. And of course you Eventually, being the aircraft captain or as a co-pilot, hopefully listening to your aircraft captain, you're not going to try to execute a landing until it's safe to do so, and you just got to wait it out. And I guess the
0: ship has to go in a straight line while you guys are doing that.
1: Yeah, they do. I mean, if they do need to maneuver, they will wave us off somewhere and they'll they'll reposition. But yeah, they are kind of once they've picked a heading or we've requested a heading, we've you know worked through winds and all the rest of that stuff. So they have to kind of stay the course until we're successfully landed on the ground
0: man that's got to be really scary sometimes
1: there's certainly been some challenging days for sure and again we kind of chat a little bit offline about it but when you come back to the ship when you first you know kind of deployed from the ship you're within limits we have now it's a kind of an accelerometer to say whether or not you're in or out of limits to land and take off just like our normal kind of weather wind limits Uh, but ship motion limits is something that we have to deal with okay So you may deploy and you're within limits and then all of a sudden, you know, you hit some unexpected weather or some unexpected sea state and you come back and you're out of limits.
0: Okay. What are you going to do? You got to land. Yeah. (laughs) There's nothing. You don't have an alternate.
1: There's no alternate. There's no options. You're at the only possible spot to to land the helicopter. So you just
0: got to execute. Is that where the bear trap comes into play?
1: Yeah. So the bear trap certainly assists with that. We can, we can land what's called. Clear deck, free deck, or tethered, essentially.
0: So can you explain what the bear trap is? So
1: the bear trap is this mechanism that secures us to the deck. A successful landing, we have a probe that will deploy out of the middle of the fuselage, the body of the helicopter.
0: Is that like on a cable or?
1: No. So the probe will come down regardless. Okay. And when you land, it's—it's. I think it's probably about four feet by four feet, the bear trap. Okay. And if you can put the probe in the bear trap, the LSO will close the bear trap and it secures you on deck. We can do that with a tether or without a tether. If there's rougher sea states, it would be more beneficial to use a tether. And essentially what the LSO could do is apply tension as you're lowering, lowering collective and help guide you in to a degree. Now, granted, it's a pretty heavy helicopter and that is assistance at best.
0: Yeah. Right. So like a person hooks that up?
1: Yeah. We would get into a high hover we would lower messenger wire. A deck handler would come out, clip those together, give a signal. We would raise the messenger wire and that would essentially get us on the tether. Okay. And then we'd try to execute a landing that way. And as we are lowering collective to land, the LSO is applying a certain amount of pounds, pounds of pressure to try to help us guide ourselves into the bear trap.
0: That sounds really intense.
1: <laughs> it's, it is Honestly it's it's some of the most challenging but best flying that obviously I've done but I think overall in the in the calf it's uh it's a challenging feat.
0: Well it is a great feeling like when you're really earning your pay and you're coming in under difficult weather challenging circumstances on fixed wing let's say you're fighting a big crosswind and there's lots of gusts or wind shear visibility's bad whatever and you get in there you bring it in you're on solid ground again and you can kind of just go Oh, And you get this feeling like, yeah, we did it.
1: Well, exactly, right? So in the moment, you're just, you wish that obviously you had calm seas and sunny skies all the time. Everyone loves to land when it's nice out. Exactly, exactly. But when you do kind of get down, it's kind of etched in your mind as as obviously some of the most challenging flying. and, And there is kind of a heightened sense of accomplishment when you do things that you know only a handful of pilots will ever do in that kind of regime of flying. So that's, it's pretty cool.
0: So we've talked about a day at sea, right? What does a normal day look like at 423 squadron? Mm -hmm.
1: 423 squadron. Oh, first and foremost, a great group of guys, good camaraderie (laughs) out there, but 423 squadron with a changeover from sea King to cyclone, as with any kind of fleet that is trying to introduce a new, a new helicopter. There's been some serviceability issues, obviously, some setbacks in progression of training so we do have some state-of-the-art simulators there that are getting high use i'd say in terms of in terms of training so you know you spend some time doing simulator trips there is also obviously local training flights that we do to stay proficient in the helicopter but we end up sharing the fleet with 406 and generating new pilots does take priority
0: yeah, we had the same issue in Greenwood with 404 and 405. Yeah. The operational squadron is always second priority. And if you're having any serviceability issues, that means that all the serviceable aircraft are going to the training squadron.
1: Exactly. So deployed operations are pri one, students are pri two. And your own kind of flying proficiency is pri three, considering that you have like two state of the art simulators that are accessible for the most part. But with that new fleet. As well, there's a lot of amendments to courseware. It's how can we do it better? Kind of those thinking groups to to try to maximize training value with the resources that we have, and then of course the normal list of secondary duties that that are at kind of any squadron. So,
0: how often do you think you fly? Like on a weekly basis? Let's You'd be say.
1: scheduled probably for about three trips a week. Okay, I'd say so. It's not um, uncommon scheduling wise, and then again, it's a matter of whether or not those aircraft are going to be serviceable. And then you end up, you know, probably donating one of those to the 406 program. That's actually a big reason why, you know, they employ as much of us, or I guess we take advantage of the MTP course, the maintenance test pilot course. So when things aren't going well, serviceability wise, we at least have the resources to, to try to get some back online so we can get some of that training. So
0: yeah, for sure. And the thing that listeners should realize as well is It's not uncommon for something, like there's so many things on this aircraft. When we say that an aircraft goes US or unserviceable, it could be something major, it could be something quite minor, but if something's broken, it's broken. And if you're the second, I'm sure you guys run into this as well, if there's a training flight first and you're taking it after them Mm -hmm. because they're first priority, it's just that much more of a chance that something has gone wrong during that flight. Exactly. And it might be something minor, but it's still enough to bump your trip off for the day. Exactly,
1: or... Or the type of trip as well, right? So if think of instrument flying is, I guess, the easiest example, but uh, ours would say overwater flying vice, you know, just kind of going out for proficiency hands and feet type stuff, you know, like we could lose the Sonoboy dispenser and that stops restricted. So it essentially is just kind of a, again, the flying bus, but it's just the helicopter that you can go out and you can do some sort of confined area landings. or do some do. pilot You stuff. just have to, yeah, you have to just kind of amend what you want to do. Right. But when I left, which was probably just over a year ago now, the serviceability was good enough that I would get a few trips a week.
0: Okay. And yeah, so
1: that's pretty good. Yeah.
0: What would you say was the hardest part when you started flying on the Cyclone?
1: It would certainly be seaborne operations. Okay. Reason being is that there's no real portion of the operational training unit that touches on the hands and feet of seaborne operations. So the first time that I, transitioned over top of a deck was on my way out on my first deployment. So there's no workup to that. Now that like, let me qualify that by saying that typically we have sea training on with us and we do a couple days around the local area, but I essentially was not getting off the ship until, or at least back on Canadian soil until we got back from the deployment. So you learn how to fly this helicopter, You learn some of the theory behind landing on a ship, but you don't get that experience until you're in it. So there is no work up to that. So that that I think is probably the biggest challenge for any maritime helicopter pilot is you're thrown in the pool.
0: So something I always ask after that is, what can you do to overcome that? It sounds to me like probably just getting in the reps. Yeah, I mean, that's some of it, but it again
1: goes back to work ethic and preparation, control what you can control and then accept what you can't is what I would say. So we have shipborne operating procedures, know your limits, know the approach profiles, know the numbers required. So you don't have to waste any mental capacity thinking of that. And you can just kind of focus on the task at hand. That concept likely rings true for a lot of things when it comes to flight training Mm -hmm. is that, We have thousands and thousands of pages of publications, which you know, but to be able to parse through that, understand the important things and commit those things to memory in order to allow you the capacity to get the job done is probably the only thing that
0: can can really prepare you, I'd say. How much are you away from home flying the Cyclone? Mm
1: -hmm. I kind of alluded to this with kind of my personal sailing schedule and depending on who you ask, it's always quite varied.
0: I guess some of it comes down to luck.
1: It is. It is. I happen to be more of a seaborne guy than an overland guy. There are people in squadron that are more overland than seaborne, and they end up doing uh, the ferry flights, and they end up doing east-west transfers. And there was a cyclone here only uh, about a week, week and a half ago, and they were doing essentially an east-west transfer and a cross-country PR tour (laughs) Nice at the same time, which was awesome to see. but. In terms of deploying, it's typically a six-month sail, usually maybe a little bit under or a little bit over, give or take a month. And then they do have smaller operations or multinational operations, say off the coast or down in Autek off the coast of the Bahamas. And those can be two to three months as well. So it's varied, but expect if you're going to be a maritime helicopter pilot that you will deploy at least twice in your first tour as a co-pilot and, and hopefully eventually an aircraft captain for at least nine months at most
0: 15 months. Okay. So you can expect to deploy once every two years type thing. Exactly.
1: I deployed, I deployed in 2018, 2020. And in, in the middle of that, I did a three month stint down in Autec as well. So down off the coast of Florida. And I mean, that one wasn't too tough.
0: Yeah, right. But it's still time away.
1: It is. It is time away. And again, if you take, for example, what this last crew just did, they, I believe, took a month to just, you know, hit a bunch of different stops in terms of trying to cultivate some interest in the cyclone, doing some recruiting for the RCAF. So you can be away from home domestically as well Mm -hmm. in certain cases. So because we are a fleet that is able to kind of do a little bit of everything, there's a chance that you can get tasked to do a little bit of everything.
0: So it sounds like you need to be prepared if you want to fly the cyclone for a fair bit of time away.
1: Yeah, I'd say so in the operational sense, for sure. Yeah. In terms of that career progression that we talked about, there's a couple other things that you can end up doing. You're a little bit of a master of your own domain as well. So I talked about myself going the MTP route. You can then parry over as well to 406 and become a maritime helicopter instructor pilot and teach and that
0: course keeps you at home right. as well. And then there's those other positions and standards, et cetera. Something that I've come to realize in the last couple of years is that as pilots, most of us, we just want to fly. Yeah, We want to fly and we want to be, most of us, operational. We all joined to be at the pointy end and that's kind of what we want, especially when we're new, right? Yeah. But there is a reason that they kind of ideally would say, okay, you do four years operational, four years out of school, two or three years in a ground position and then back to operational because that actually gets you a chance to not be burnt out. If you do all that time, so I just counted out 10 years, if you do 10 years operational, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be really burnt out. It's going to be very hard on your family because you're going to be gone every couple of years for half a year or more. That's really tough.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's a a real disservice to you as a pilot as well because there's so many things that you could gain and acquire from being in squadron. Mm -hmm. So that... Opportunity to to kind of become a flight safety specialist or an HPMA specialist or human performance in military
0: aviation is
1: uh, HPMA. So there's all these opportunities in Squadron to learn about very important concepts of aviation outside of actually being on the controls. That's right. That you don't really get the opportunity to focus on, you know, doing deployed operations.
0: Yeah, there's more to being a pilot than just flying. Yeah. And even a school, a lot of people don't want to go to a school, which I think is crazy. But learning to be an instructor is huge. You learn so much about the art of flying when you have to learn to take it from being kind of instinctive to saying it and explaining it to somebody and, and putting it into words and showing them how to do it. Yeah. What would you say was your best day on the cyclone?
1: My best day on the cyclone was probably my first accomplishment of the Cyclone. The transition from the Sea King to the Cyclone was, of course, a challenging one, and a challenging one for for command as well. They gave priority for the most part in the initial conversion training to a seasoned, or at least a little bit seasoned, lightly seasoned, MH pilots that had a qualification in the Sea King. I... Um, as well as one other individual happened to be the first unseasoned, the ab initio untouched pilot. So they loaded two of us on conversion training one. And it was a bit of an experiment to see kind of how we would measure up against individuals with a little bit more time. And because they had kind of earmarked me for that first deployment, they pushed the pace a little bit. So I was a little bit, actually, I mean, it's almost consistent with all of my pilot training, feeling a little bit behind the eight ball or having to try that much harder because I didn't have any, any aviation experience or whatever the case kind of may be. Knowing that I was a little bit under the microscope, uh, I put that much more effort in and I was the first to finish the course, along with a major that was, again, a very, like a 4,000 hour pilot. Okay, well, wow. So... That accomplishment, I remember it quite vividly. I was walking back from the aircraft, and the CO was out there to, to kind of meet me. And again, gave that kind of cautious look like, How did you do? How did you do? Did <laughs> yeah. it? Is it good to go? And I was flying with Captain McDonald at the time, and uh, he kind of gave the thumbs up. He said, Good enough to be a co pilot, and kind of gave a smirk. And, uh, <laughs> and that was that. So, that walk probably from the aircraft back to the hangar was, was a pretty proud moment for me. So,
0: it's a great feeling, isn't it? It is,
1: yeah. How long is the OTU? Variable. Ideally. Ideally, I feel like you can get through it in four to six months. Okay.
0: Yeah, which is a bit of a slog. A lot of people's OTU is, is quite short. On the Aurora, we're about nine months, eight, nine months. Yeah. Four to six months is quite long, too. It's another whole flying course. For
1: sure. And I mean,
0: it's likely the same, probably more so
1: for you guys, maybe. But we're... A little bit limited by weather as mm-hmm. well. So it depends the type of, the, the time of year that you're there, the aircraft serviceability. Again, a couple variables come into play. Yeah, um, for sure.
0: I mean, you need a few days of like the aircraft are capable in in all weather. Yeah. But then you as a student need certain weather to go out and actually be able to see what you're doing and you know, you can go out in some bad weather because that's good experience too, but you can't do every flight in bad weather because you need a chance to go out and have the visual references and be able to see what it looks like to see a ship from 20 miles away or to have a horizon to practice some of the things you need to do.
1: Exactly. And there's like, there is a, an overwater component. There's not a shipborne operation component, but there's an overwater component where you'll go out and again, dip, lower the sonar, raise the sonar, all the rest of that stuff. And if you don't have the limits over the water, or if you have some equipment stuff, like the, the aircraft flying, but the equipment might be US or ops restricted or stuff like that. So there's just some delays can pop up.
0: Yep, for sure. So if that was your best day on the cyclone, what would you say was your hardest day?
1: Hardest day on the cyclone, when I was in control of the cyclone, was a deployed mission. It was just one of those days. And I think that most pilots will, at some point, have something similar where The weather may or may not be in limits. It was a night operation. There was a risk of clear icing at, you know, an altitude that we were planning to operate below, but
0: not a lot below. The significance of clear icing is that it tends to be pretty severe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it can weigh you down pretty quickly and put you in a bad spot. And it was a night op. So I was looking at the weather and kind of humming and hawing. It was one of those things where I looked to my debt commander for a little bit of guidance as an aircraft captain. uh, And I said, you know, would you go? And he looked at it a little bit. It was a very dark night as well. Millilux was down. uh, And he said, yeah, you know, I'd go. Sorry, what was down? The Millilux. So that was just a very dark night. You know, there was not a lot of ambient light from the moon. Okay. So anyways, we gear up. We're over the Arctic Sea. So north in northern Norway. We take off deploy from the ship. I lose visual of the ship, go to turn on my night vision goggles and I get a goggle failure. Oh, wow. Now, typically in that regime, we have two battery packs and then you just kind of flick it over to the other, the other side and they come back on. I attempted that. Unsuccessful as well. I hand control to the co-pilot who's already on goggles. And we have something on the cyclone called RIPs, which is a nice detection system essentially. And it gives you the metric actually like a, how do I explain that? Like how bad icing is? Yeah. Essentially it'll say, okay, well you're picking up some light icing, some moderate icing, some severe. Okay. And the RIP system kicks in almost immediately. We're at about 200 feet and it just starts to peg over oh, wow. into the severe icing and I can't see any. <laughs> so that was probably my worst day. Anyways, I ended up taking control back, we're off goggles my MHTC taco was on the radio. We got back behind the ship, executed a landing. Turns out the cord was frayed to the box that actually holds the batteries, so there was no no hope for goggles for me uh, that day. But got back behind the ship, landed on, avoided the icing, and and just kind of carried on. But again, speaking to one of those one of those moments that makes you think is you know you're only about a hundred feet. Cause you're trying to, I mean, we hit ice at 200. So we're, we're between zero and 200 feet over water, black night, flying off the Rattalt. We have like the, the one little light out in the uh, distance to try to get back to, navigate to, land to. Anyways, that was the end of my night that night. So.
0: That sounds. That was, that was the worst one. Really intense. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah.
1: But I mean, those experiences are what help you grow, what help you learn. Again, the, yep. the struggle is kind of what gets you there and it gives you just, um, you know, another sense of airmanship.
0: Listeners who are listening carefully will notice that for that last answer, you started with your worst day while you were at the controls of the cyclone. On April 29th, 2020, Stalker 22 crashed into the Ionian Sea while operating from the HMCS Fredericton, killing all on board. Can you tell us about how that day went for you?
1: That day, um, I mean, it was, the easy answer is obviously it was it – was, massively difficult. You're you're almost uh putting a kind of a tailspin trying to cultivate information as best you can when of course the opposite is employed in the calf. Communications go down intentionally. Intentionally for sure. So people that are that are immediately involved are are dealing with with the tragedy, with the accident and you're just kind of on the sidelines working to try to gather as much information as possible just to give you some sort of semblance of control so that's how i remember the day was pacing essentially trying to figure out who was who the crews were who were on board how the crews would have been kind of broken up the first reports that came out mentioned a sea king vice a cyclone out of Greece. And, and, you know, it was just trying to verify what information was credible, the best way that you could. And that's just kind of how I remember it. And then again, just touching base with immediate friends, trying to just deal with it collectively. To I see think. who's safe and... Just see who's safe and, and see who knows what uh, for the most part. But it was obviously very erratic, and, uh, and that's how I guess the best way that I can explain how, how the initial the initial day went. And then of course, as more information came in, it was very piecemeal, unverified, and you just kind of wait until command calls you in to give you actual details.
0: So after the dust sort of settled and a little bit of time went on, how did you find that affected you?
1: It was the only positives that you can draw really is how the maritime helicopter community came together. I found a lot of support from, from people in that community. Again, those friendships that you cultivate were, I think for a lot of people, very important in working through the tragedy. And, uh, you know, you, you again, wait for, for answers. And, and not that answers make anything any better or worse. I think it kind of gives you, uh, again, that semblance of, of control, but with anything of this nature, there's a time aspect that is very hard to appreciate. I don't know if you remember it as well, obviously as vividly as I do, but you know, the equipment required to recover the uncertainty of of kind of where it was and the state of everybody uh, there was a period of time in there where you just you just didn't know what was going on and and for me I kind of found comfort in just kind of dealing with those realities with people in the community uh, the MH community and the Nova Scotian community they, like there was a lot of a lot of support you know that was around at the time so do
0: you think that doing that and dealing with it in that way has allowed you to have a degree of closure and to move on in a way that's healthy or are you still working through it in some ways?
1: I mean I don't think that you're ever not working through it you you know you understand uh, aviation in general but more so military aviation there's there's risks associated with more complex flying for sure but no I don't think that I don't think over it is a thing that you ever get to in terms of dealing with it in terms of outlets the military as well as the community, like the military themselves have come a long way in terms of providing different supports, operational stress injury stuff, and, and kind of mental health pieces to help work through these types of events. And then secondarily, again, discussing that stuff with people that have had similar experiences or the same experiences certainly help. But I think it's always kind of a constant self-check here and there to make sure that that you're kind of doing okay with with that type of stuff.
0: Thanks for opening up about that. I know it's not easy.
1: No, it's. A, I mean, it's it's certainly a, a tough subject to broach uh, mm-hmm. and and to reflect on. Um, Thank you. Yeah.
0: Shifting gears, what would you say are the most memorable flights you've had while flying the Cyclone?
1: Mm-hmm. Most memorable flight that I had was. I think it had to have been about a four, four and a half hour long flight. It was in Lithuania and my MHCC uh, at the time, Major Pete Tomlick now, he, um, he had this idea of pretty much executing a medevac, diver deployment, a folks transfer into Lithuania in consort with the Lithuanians.
0: And this was all training?
1: This was all training, but it was like a obviously multinational training kind of event. So the idea being there was somebody in the water, you had to go pick them up, deploy some divers, recover them, bring them back to the ship. They get some medical attention. You hoist them down onto the foc'sle, which is the front of the ship. So you're kind of doing some sidewards flight into a ship that's floating into you, essentially driving into you. And from there, getting some sort of semblance of medical attention and then airlifting them into Lithuania. And it was, again, I was a pretty junior aircraft captain. I was pretty nervous in terms of like just the complexity of like two, three, like typically you spend a lot of time just kind of briefing one of those four aspects, but uh, it was certainly probably my most memorable flight in terms of like doing, doing the business, doing the job and that kind of dynamic
0: flying. So were you intimidated when you found out that was the plan? (laughs)
1: Oh, I, yes, I was. <laughs> I wouldn't, I, you know, I could admit it after the fact at the time I'm like, oh no, it's not a big deal. But yeah, when I found out what the plan was, there was a little bit of intimidation for sure. So I was an aircraft captain with a junior co-pilot, pretty green, and then had a new-ish crew commander. So he, the crew commander came over from 406. He spent a lot of time there uh, just teaching. So not a new crew commander, but new to operational cyclone. Right. So there was a lot of learning that was going on, and honestly, again, the best way to learn is is under stress. Sometimes, and and it was a pretty complex thing, but uh, it was well executed. And uh, again, one of those things you come back from, and you're like, man, that was cool.
0: That was great that we pulled that off. That we pulled that off,
1: and everything went well. Yeah. And yeah, so it was it was one of the good ones.
0: Okay, it's sales pitch time. In 30 seconds or less, if I'm a pilot in training, why should I want to fly the Cyclone? What makes it unique, and who would it appeal to? Okay, number
1: one, pay. Now I don't know what the pay differences now because they're kind of amending those. But at one point, I believe we were the highest paid pilots in the Canadian Forces. Okay. Reason being is especially I think if we were in Halifax because PLD, which is getting, yeah, I was getting changed, so that'll be gone. No promises, but you get aircrew pay and C pay
0: on top of your normal pilot pay. So pay was a big one. Well, they'll still be getting, I would think, C pay.
1: They get the C pay. Air crew is- Part of your salary part now. Part of your salary now. So there might be some amendments. I don't know how it's, I didn't look too close. Okay. But the second one, we already kind of talked about flying in general. That kind of that kind of flying is unmatched, I feel. Maybe 427, they must do something over there, I feel, is in the mix. But outside of that, this is the most dynamic helicopter flying, the Canadian Forces. In my opinion, I'm biased. Sarguys guys will tell you different. TACA will tell you different. So we're all just going to argue and agree to disagree. And the third is travel. So port stops. So the one thing, just think of the Navy as like a very terrible cruise ship, but you get, (laughs) you get to go to a lot of cool places. So my first deployment was in the Mediterranean. I hit Sicily, I hit Egypt, I hit Croatia, I hit North Africa, I hit Israel. So there's a lot of, and of course, Spain, Portugal, Wow, you get to hit all of these different destinations every, I mean, it could be as, as much as every two weeks could be as long as once a month, but it's the only, it's the only community I feel where you get to see all these different places because there's just different stops on the, uh, schedule on the deployment. Yeah. So I've been lucky enough to see the Mediterranean side of it. And then the second time that I was deployed, it was more up in the Baltic. So Norway, Denmark. You know, France. I've seen a lot more of the world than some of my counterparts.
0: What kind of a person would it appeal to?
1: Um, I think that it would appeal to someone with number one a high tolerance because, again, when you kind of high
0: tolerance for what? Just in general.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like the again the type of flying. Some people don't deal well with that kind of high stress flying. Yep. Right. So, kind of that adventure seeker, as I feel, is what. I think it would mostly appeal to, for me, and I think a lot of people that are like-minded, you want to get your deployments out. I think that's an- anywhere, though. You want to get those out early in terms of getting that operational experience Or sure. you have you know, a family. Being away from home, no matter what community you're in, is never great. Yep. And these deployments are six months, where I think um, a lot of the times, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the uh, fixed-wing side, it's more of three months.
0: Yeah, it's typically two to three months.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that differs for us. It's usually six. So somebody that is either single or, or, you know, is ready to kind of commit to that
0: amount of time away. Yeah. You need to have that independent spouse
1: and. Yeah. Just kind of know what you're getting into beforehand. But I mean, hopefully you've done your research by the time you put in kind of selection type
0: things. And that's something that
1: you're at least aware of. Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. We're down to our last three questions. Okay. They're always the same. Okay. What is the most important thing you do to keep yourself ready for the job?
1: Study. Always keep learning. And that doesn't mean that you're necessarily in the books all the time, but you learn from, there's always somebody that has been, that has more hours than you that has been in similar situations, but you learn from other pilots. I loved, loved learning from technicians. I spent a lot of time, especially on my second sale, the aircraft serviceability wasn't as well as it was on the first sale. I think the hours that I got were about halved. Okay. But I spent a lot of time in what they call the item, the tech manual, um, going through some things with technicians to really understand not only that the aircraft is broken, but why the aircraft is broken, how these things work. And honestly, it's a wealth of knowledge out there and just, Continue to keep learning and set your goals to what's kind of coming up next, and facilitate an avenue to get there the best way that you can.
0: I like your answer, but I like your follow up even more that studying doesn't necessarily mean being in the books that some of your best resources are, are the people around you for sure for and sure, I also really like that you mentioned the technicians because they are so knowledgeable and their documents are much more in-depth than just your what we call AOIs your aircraft operating instructions that have your systems and and various things in them that's typically what aircrew are studying or at least pilots are studying for sure but the items as you mentioned the tech manuals that they have are so much more in depth and once you're ready to go into that depth level you can learn a lot about your aircraft systems and you that really brings you up to what i think the level of knowledge that a crew commander should have
1: for sure for sure i would agree
0: yeah that's really cool what do you think makes a good pilot i
1: think first and foremost being humble will make you a good pilot because totally. if, if <laughs> it will humble you at some point mm-hmm. if you think otherwise when i started teaching. Deck landings, for example, is something that I endeavored to drive into my co-pilot. Just like, do not be afraid of waving yourself off. And that was driven into my head by the aircraft captain that, that taught me. A lot of times, I feel like pilots in general felt pressure to make things work when they tried to execute a landing that may not have been perfect and just realize that it's challenging and you have to check your ego at the door a little bit when it comes to that kind of flying, because safety is paramount, obviously. Mm -hmm. And those two things don't usually go hand in hand when you're trying to just kind of execute a landing and you don't want to miss and you have to kind of check that at the door. And I guess the second thing that I would say is kind of that diverse knowledge that we talked about. There's so much out there in terms of information or skill set for piloting in the air. I'd say more so in the RCAF, I had a lot of experience with deployed operations. I didn't have a ton of experience in the overland side. Right. So trying to expand my knowledge in the IF world, for example, flying into busy airports.
0: Like for instrument flight?
1: Instrument flying or just doing VFR visual flying rules into busy airports as well. It's just something I'm not, I wasn't heavily exposed to by way of being out in Halifax and way of being overseas so there's always things to work on right so just understand that that the career in general is just a learning process and there's always more
0: yeah and there's going to be some discomfort that comes with that right
1: yeah for sure it's um you know it was one of the reasons i i asked to come out to porters prairie things i loved about the job were that teaching aspect but on the opposite side of it things that i wasn't massively comfortable with is flying to the States cross country. It's just not something that I did while I was on my first tour ever. So I identified kind of somewhere where I think that I could improve and kind of worked that into my, my career plan to
0: be a, a more rounded pilot. That's great. All right, this is the last question. I want you to picture somebody who is thinking about joining or has just joined, they want to be a pilot. What advice would you give to that new pilot? <laughs>
1: I would say if you've just joined, I'll take that example and I'll say they do this a little bit for you, but really give it thought is to set goals first and foremost, and then make those goals known. There's usually a tale of two pilots. I feel in the air force, there are, are pilots that seem to have wanted a career progression and have gotten that career progression. And then there's a pilot that had wished for something and things just didn't line up. And I think communication comes into play in a big way. There are people out there in terms of career managers or even chain of command sometimes that might just say that's not possible. Understand that it's always possible and work towards those, those goals is kind of what I'd say. So I have been fortunate that uh, maybe I haven't gotten absolutely everything that I've wanted, but I've been able to navigate through at least this portion of my career since joining the RCAF in a way that I at least had some sort of directed control of. And that's because I made those intentions known to my chain of command and had really candid conversations about what was possible, what's not. So that's kind of the, the advice that I would give is just number one, do your work and, you know, I guess first impressions are everything and leave a good impression. And then secondly, that will parry into the ability to have those conversations about what you want to do long-term and give it some good thought.
0: That's a really great answer. I like that. Okay. So that's going to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Corey, for coming in today. I know you're very busy with instructing and I really appreciate you taking the time out today to chat with us.
1: That's great. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Cheers.
0: All right. That wraps up our episode on the cyclone with Corey O'Neill. For our next episode, I'll be sitting down with my old comrade from Aurora days, Paul Hodgson. Paul worked extensively with Canadian Forces Recruitment Group, or CFRG, and we'll be answering all your recruiting questions that were submitted by listeners as well as the Canadian Forces subreddit. Do you have any questions or comments about something you've heard in this episode, or would you or someone you know make a great guest? You can reach out to us at thepilotprojectpodcast at gmail.com or on all social media at, at podpilotproject. As always, we'd like to thank you for your help with our growth in listenership. We've seen some huge growth this month, so rest assured your efforts are helping us. With that, we'd like to ask for your help, as always, with the big three. That's like and follow us on social media, share with your friends, and follow and rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Keep the blue side up. See ya! Engineer, shut down all 4 shutting down all four engines.